So let's pray before we open the scripture and read it and, and we'll pray for Carl too as um, he presents a message on a, on a pretty touchy topic. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray as we open the scripture, Lord, we're up to Leviticus 18 and Carl will be preaching on it. We do pray that your spirit will give Carl boldness and courage to preach what you might want him to tell us today through your spirit. Lord, we pray that we'll be receptive and understanding to, to what's here and that we too might come away um, encouraged to continue to be faithful in our walk with you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Leviticus 18. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites, say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws For the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonour your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonour your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonour you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonour your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonour your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or a daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of a monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbour's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of God. I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. 
The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things Such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not allow any of the detestable customs that were practised before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Thanks, Carl. I want to say, uh, if you're visiting here this morning, uh, it's really great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Carl, I'm the, the pastor here, and uh, uh, if you are visiting here this morning for the first time, you've caught us uh, on an interesting day. Uh, we've been going through the book of Leviticus, like, like Chris said, and uh, I guess I've challenged myself, uh, as we've been going through, not to uh, skip over anything that's a bit hard. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at Leviticus 18 today, even though... Maybe it's a bit, uh, a bit uncomfortable. Uh, you've got to hand it to, uh, to God and to uh, Moses in Leviticus that uh, it's nothing if not honest, uh, isn't it? Uh, it's a pretty confronting book uh, in general. To get us uh, thinking about uh, kind of how Leviticus 18 works and how it fits in with uh, where we're at as a society uh, and where we're at as, as Christians, I suppose, living in uh, this society... I want to uh, read a little bit from an article, a recent opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald by uh, Melinda Tankard-Reist who asked the question, do you ever feel like you're living in a giant porn theme park? Billboards dominate public space with hyper-sexualised messages. Buses are painted with semi-naked women. There are pole dancing themes in shop fronts. Porn mags next to the lollies at the petrol station counter, T-shirts in youth surf shops depicting S&M and Playboy bunnies on everything from girls' jewellery to doona covers. It's a pretty uh, damning uh, indictment, isn't it, that that, uh, opinion writer writes in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, And she's picking up on what a a number of people, and I think her in particular, have labelled the pornification uh, of our society. Uh, and there's lots of ways, I think, that, uh, that our society has begun to push different messages about sex uh, to what the Bible uh, has pushed. I, I don't know, maybe just throw out, if, uh, if you'd like to, just what are some of the ways that our society uh, pushes uh, messages about sex? What are some of the messages about sex that our society pushes what's good, what's bad? Does anyone want to kind of offer up any suggestions? Call out. What feels good is okay. What feels good is okay, yeah. What about on TV, movies? What kind of messages are pushed there? Anyone? uh... What's that? Sex is love. Yeah. I'm going to steal my Sunday. Yeah, sorry. Anything else? Sorry? Anything goes? Yep. Anything goes. No rules, no boundaries. Yeah. It comes back to that love idea, doesn't it? Um... Here are some of the ones I thought of uh, as I thought about 
sex outside marriage, uh, whenever, with whoever you want, uh, even if people aren't necessarily that extreme, uh, they at least accept the notion of living together before you get married. Uh, there's the widespread acceptance of gay sex. There's the legalisation of prostitution. Uh, there's the open portrayal of sex in the media. Uh, and that, you know, just to name a few, I think, of the ways that sex is kind of, or different messages to what the Bible is saying, different messages about sex are permeating uh, our culture. Now, we might be tempted to think that those things are modern phenomena, that those things are modern problems. But, but as you look through these laws in Leviticus 18 uh, that God gave to people three and a half thousand years ago, you begin to get the, begin to get the sense that you know, society has been pushing the boundaries in these areas for a really long time. It's not a new thing. Uh, in fact, you get the distinct impression that uh, God's views on sex were just as countercultural in 1500 BC as they are today. In fact, I almost wonder if they were more so. Leviticus 18 was originally uh, shaped by God to speak to the people in 1500 BC, his people, about his views on sex. Uh, and just as God spoke into the confusion of the world back then, uh, God speaks into the confusion of our world in our day and he speaks into the confusion of our world about what his views on sex are as well. Now it might seem outdated to some people to think uh, about God's views on sex by looking back to commandments three and a half thousand years ago but the truth is I guess that God hasn't really changed his mind on this stuff. You know, He still thinks the same way today as he did back then. So what we're going to do is just uh, work through uh, Leviticus 18 and think about what God has to say about uh, sex and think about how that then pushes through uh, into the New Testament and how that's taken up and how it fits together with the Gospel, uh, the good news about Jesus. Well, most of this chapter, uh, I'm sure you noticed, as Chris read, is taken up with uh, talking about which close relative you can't sleep with. Uh, so the list includes, I, I think I've, I've got them all, it includes your mother, your stepmother, your sister, your half-sister, your granddaughter, your aunt, your daughter-in-law, your sister-in-law, your stepdaughter, your step-granddaughter and your neighbour's wife. And by neighbour's wife it means uh, anyone uh, who, not doesn't just mean your next door neighbour, but it just means anybody else's wife. Now obviously the list is written in terms of, of, uh, of men but the principle here is reciprocal. Uh, it includes women as well and you could go through the list and replace mother with, uh, uh, or father with mother if you like and, and stepfather with stepmother uh, or no, the other way around. Replace mother with father, stepmother with stepfather and, and all that, right? So you could replace it. That that, that, that's not the important thing. The important thing is the principle behind it and the principle behind it is stated uh, in, verse five, uh, in verse 6 no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. If you were to summarise uh, the principle, you'd say this, you can't have sex with whoever you want. That's the, the basic idea. There are limits placed on that, not by our will and, and our choices, but by God. The limit that God places on uh, sex, at least in terms of other parts of the Bible, is Sex is designed to be within marriage, it's between a husband and a wife. But this chapter uh, goes a little bit further and, and even specifies who can be your husband or your wife. It can't be a, a close relative. That's the point. 
Uh, and today we know that there are some pretty good genetic reasons for that as well. But the emphasis in this chapter is on things like dishonour and rivalry. Uh, this chapter is saying wrong sex creates rivalries and destroys relationships. It brings shame and it brings dishonour on people. So that's really, I think, the first kind of broad principle. But the chapter goes on uh, to talk about regulations about homosexuality. So in verse 22 uh, it says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. In other words, the thing which is wrong about homosexuality, this verse is saying, is that it's wrong for a man to do uh, with another man what's intended to, do, uh, to be done with a woman. So by extension that same uh, applies then also to women. Women uh, ought not to do with a woman what ought to be done with a man. That principle is then extended uh, to prohibit sex with animals. Uh, verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. The basic point is this. Sex ought to be according to God's design. That's the basic point that, this, uh, that those uh, regulations are trying to get across. Uh, and that's a really crucial principle. I think that even gives us uh, kind of directions about how sex is to be pursued within marriage. Uh, sex ought to be pursued according to God's design. Uh, some of you might know what Mark Driscoll has written on uh, Song of Songs. I don't know if any of you know that. But uh, I think in this context, what Mark Driscoll says in, that, uh, in his series of sermons there is wrong. Uh, I won't go into what he says, but if you know what I'm talking about, uh, you'll probably know what I mean. But uh, the, the basic point is this, that sex ought to be according to God's design, uh, both within marriage and outside as well. So we've had uh, those two uh, general principles then, sex can't be pursued with whoever. Uh, sex ought to be according to God's design. Uh, but there's also the regulation in, in verse 19, which is maybe a, a slightly different one. Uh, verse 19 says, Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Now this law is still tied up back with the, the regulations in Leviticus 15 about Cleanness, which was a picture, if you were here last year, you'll remember that that was all a picture of the gospel, what God was doing in the gospel. Our hearts are like toilets which pump out sewage and God gave the people these kind of regulations in order to convey that picture to each other and to the world at large of what he was going to do in the gospel, that he was going to clean up people's hearts. And what this regulation is doing here in Leviticus 18 is, is saying if a person violates that deliberately, then, there, you know, then that is detestable to God. In Leviticus 15, there were uh, regulations. If, if someone you know, happened to do this by accident, uh, then, then they could wash themselves and, and that would be okay. But here, what is in view is a deliberate act. The uh, regulations, the particular regulations, are no longer relevant, this side of the cross, now that what uh, they pointed to has become a rea reality, but nevertheless, this law kind of still suggests that sex is not limited uh, in terms of when, by where, when a person feels like uh, sex or they don't feel like it. I think the, the kind of the broader principle behind this uh, 
particular regulation is that sometimes sex is subservient to larger goals. Paul works out a similar principle in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, He tells married couples there that they might like to put sex on hold for a time uh, so that they can devote themselves to prayer, Uh, although not for too long so that they don't end up falling into temptation. In other words, what Paul is saying there, and I think what God is saying here in Leviticus 18 is that even the when of sex, even the when of sex in the marriage is subservient to larger goals. It's not just about you and what you feel like. Sex is subservient to larger goals. I think uh, with those kind of three broad principles in mind, there's kind of really one underlying principle which gets hammered through this chapter, which stands behind all those things, and that is the idea that, that sexual relationships are defined by God and not by us. I mean... It's not rocket science really, is it? But that's the point of this chapter. Sex is, is a gift from God and it's how it works is God's prerogative, not ours. Maybe another way of saying it is, is like this. God is God, sex isn't God. Sex isn't the master. God is. Whenever one of these kind of three broad principles falls by the wayside, sex effectively becomes God. One example uh, of how that uh, happens in our society uh, is the way that anything goes so long as it's within the bounds of a loving relationship. So if a person uh, falls out of love, Uh, with their husband or their wife and then they fall in love with somebody else, then sex is okay, Uh, divorce is okay. You see that in films all the time, don't you? But it's not just, that kind of thing isn't just restricted to uh, to films. I I used to, uh, when I used to to play ice hockey, I used to uh, come home late at night uh, and I would drive home, it was about an hour drive and there was nothing much on the radio. Sometimes I'd end up listening to love song dedications, I admit. (laughs) Uh, on on mix 106 as it was 106.5 or something in Sydney, and uh, it used I was it was so tremendously distressing. Uh, I always found to hear people ringing up and say, "Yeah, I, I'd love to dedicate my song to Jeff. Jeff, I love you so much. Uh, I know that you'll leave your life your wife one day, you know, and we'll be together." And I, you know, that just used to really pull the rug out from underneath me. You know, it's not <laughs> wow. You know, these things aren't hypothetical. What God's talking about in Leviticus 18 isn't, isn't pretend. These things happen and, and we know that, don't we? Our society says, as long as, it's, as long as it's within the bounds of love, that's okay. I don't know if you've ever found yourself watching a film and, and you find yourself wanting the girl to, to leave her husband and and go off with her childhood sweetheart. You know? like how, many, how many films are about that? And how many films are so insidious that they actually generate the emotions, compel the emotions within you that you find yourself wanting the wrong thing for those characters? It's just a film. But it tweaks your emotions, doesn't it? It's all in the pursuit of love. And so love becomes the idol and trumps God and it trumps God's design of the world. The gay marriage debate as well 
is almost entirely framed by the notion of love. People ask, well, if, you know, if, two, if two people of the same sex love each other, why shouldn't they be allowed to sexualise that relationship? And Leviticus 18 says, to be quite blunt, because God hates it. That's not the way he designed the world. That's not the way he designed us. God hates any sex pursued outside of his design. Gay sex, adulterous sex, uh, sex with a prostitute. In all those cases, love or sex becomes the idol and they trump God's design and they trump God. Maybe a better way of saying that is that what ends up happening is that love for ourselves or love for sex ends up trumping God. In a way, what this, chapter, what this chapter spells out is how God wants us to love him in terms of sex. Whenever a person uses sex inappropriately, even in a loving relationship, they're selling out love for God in order to cling to a wrong love for something else. To put it bluntly, whenever you, whenever you engage in wrong sex, whether it's physical or whether it's just the fantasy of it, you're hating God so that you can love sex. Ultimately, then, one of the ways that you can love God is to use the gift of sex well, according to how God has designed it. Well, that's really, I guess, the kind of the, the principle, I think, of, of, of uh, how God has, has designed sex to work in our world. But having thought about that, it's important to understand from this chapter as well, I think, why does it matter so much? You know, what's at stake here? And the answer to that question is found at the very end of the chapter in verses uh, 24 to 29. Uh, There God says, Do not defile yourselves in in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. What's going on? What's the point that God is trying to make? Well, God's saying that the sexual sins of the people defiled the land to the point that God vomited them out, which is really just a colourful way of saying that God was disgusted with how they were living. They were disgusted, he was disgusted with what they'd done to his gift of sex. And God says... Uh, that if Israel, if his people did the same thing, they would get vomited out of the land as well. They would be destroyed as well. To understand uh, exactly what is going on, we kind of have to remember what the land signified in the Old Testament. What is going on here is tied up with God's promise uh, that he made to Abraham and his descendants and to the people who followed and trusted God. God had promised that that he would give them this land and the land will be the place where God would dwell with them. Right? So the land is bound up with God living with his people. The land is about the presence of God. 
It was a shadow of what Jesus is bringing about when he comes again, when the whole universe will be renewed and all those who follow Jesus will, will live with God forever. The land was about the presence of God. In other words, what this chapter is saying then is that wrong sex defiles the presence of God. God can't exist in the same place as people who are pursuing and holding on to these things. And that's not just an Old Testament reality, it's a New Testament reality as well. If you've got your Bible there, turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 9. And Paul writes there, so Paul's writing here to the church uh, in Corinth and he says, Do not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice how Paul picks up on the same kind of sexual taboos as in Leviticus 18. He says he talks about sexual immorality of various kinds. He talks about adultery, he talks about prostitution, he talks about homosexuality. In chapter 5, he's even chastised the church there for allowing a man to remain part of the church, a guy who'd been sleeping with his father's wife or his stepmother. That rebuke uh, clearly is picking up on the ideas in Leviticus 18 of unlawful relationships. And Paul says that people who pursue those things won't inherit the kingdom of God. People who do those things, people who keep giving themselves over to them won't inherit the kingdom of God. They won't be able to coexist with God in the presence of God. But then Paul takes uh, this whole idea of the land and the presence of God in an unexpected but powerful direction in the rest of the chapter. Look at verse uh, 15. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Or verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? Do you see what's happened uh, because of the work of Jesus on the cross which stands between Leviticus 18 and 1 Corinthians? What has happened? What has changed? Well, God's presence with his people is not tied up with a particular piece of real estate in the Middle East. It's not a distant, long-off hope uh, that awaits the new heavens and the new earth, but in some way it's already a present reality. Even now, those who believe in Jesus, for them God lives in them through the Holy Spirit. God dwells in them already. Paul says our bodies are God's temple. We're the place where God lives. So the issue now is not defiling the land, a piece of real estate. The issue is defiling ourselves. And in defiling ourselves, Paul says, we defile God as well. That's the argument of verses 18 to 19. Flee from sexual immorality. All the sins a man commits are outside his body. 
but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? What Paul is saying is, what God is saying is, what you do with your body and who you join it with in sex matters. And in fact, it matters more if you're a Christian than if you're not. If you're a Christian, Paul says, God lives in you in a way which isn't true for someone who isn't a Christian. And so if you're a Christian and you use your body for wrong sex, you drag God along with you. You defile God. It's astonishing, isn't it? I think uh, as we read Leviticus 18 and as we read 1 Corinthians 6, we have to come to terms with the fact that both those chapters are not addressed to the world but addressed to the church. They're both, both of the chapters are addressed to God's people. They're addressed to people who claim to be Christians. They're addressed to people who are in danger of absorbing the sexual practices of the societies around them. I was, uh, I was rent- wrestling the other day with the fact uh, that people who I've considered to be genuine Christians, people I've known who I've considered to be genuine Christians, some of those people have fallen into the most tragic uh, sexual sins uh, imaginable. Uh, people who've, who've, who've messed up their marriages, people who've, who've messed up their relationships with, with a, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever it is, people who have messed up their lives because of tragic sexual sins. And I was trying to wrestle with the fact, how can that be? You know, how can those two things go together? And as I thought about that, it suddenly struck me that, that King David in the Old Testament, that famous example of King David in the Old Testament, a guy who murdered uh, his wife, sorry, who murdered a, a guy so that he could steal that guy's wife, David was described as a man after God's own heart. Okay, I guess I always knew that and maybe you knew that too, but just think about that for a moment. David wasn't the Christian guy who was hanging on the edges of the church. He wasn't the guy who was never involved. He wasn't the guy who, never, who always struggled to be faithful in his times of personal devotions. Now, he wasn't the guy who, when there was a public prayer meeting, who always kept quietly in the background. He was, this guy, he was on fire for God. You know, if ever there was a faithful man in the Bible, it was David. And yet, he slept with another man's wife and had the guy killed. What's the point? The point is this. It's not just weak Christians who are in danger of falling into terrible sexual failure. Even strong Christians can be sucked into it as well. And I'm sure you know, many of us can think of examples of that. And maybe sexual failure has, has marred our lives as well. I can think of uh, loads of people, as I said before, and, and loads of people through all ages, not just old people, not just married people, young people as well, teenagers, people who are on fire for God but whose lives have been marred by sexual sin. 
And Paul says uh, here, and Leviticus 18 alludes to it as well, that when Christians fall into sexual sin like that, they drag God along with them and they defile God. That's why Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Run as fast away from it as you can. Run away from it as far as you can, as quickly as you can, because it's dangerous and it defiles God. Well, we've seen, uh, I guess, the principles uh, of, of God's view on sex. We've, we've seen the damage uh, of, of wrong sex uh, that's not according to God's, God's design. Well, what word is there, though, uh, for people whose lives have been marred by sexual sin? Well, unsurprisingly, uh, the same message is found in Leviticus 18 as in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, you might not have noticed it actually in Leviticus because it's almost impossible to see. Uh, if you've got the, the NIV Bible, it's, it's translated in such a way that you, you can't really see what's going on. Uh, but at the end of chapter 18, when God is talking about people defiling themselves and defiling the land, the language behind that is that language that, that has been used all the way through Leviticus so far about uncleanness. It, a better translation would, would be, you know, don't make it unclean. Don't make yourselves unclean. God keeps saying, don't make the land unclean. Don't make yourselves unclean. And Leviticus, as we know, if you've been here through uh, uh, our, our look at it, Leviticus speaks about uncleanness a lot. Uh, uncleanness, as I said earlier, was a, was a picture of, of how our hearts are like toilets pumping out sewage. But Leviticus not only uh, illustrated to people what the problem was, that our hearts are filthy and we have wrong desires and wrong motivations, but Leviticus also spoke a word of promise about that situation. It said that one day through the Gospel, through, through, uh, through Jesus, God would not only forgive the people's sins, but he'd cleanse people's hearts. He'd renew people, give them new motivations, new desires, new loves. He'd wash all that bad stuff away. And so as people in the original setting, they read Leviticus 18 with, the, with these pictures, these illustrations in the gospel in, in, of the Gospel in mind, they could know that even though they fell, there was hope for restoration with God. And that's exactly what Paul picks up on too in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, look at verse 9 again. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the bad stuff. Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here it is, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul says... That's what some of you were. You guys were messed up. That's what he's saying. He's writing this to the church, to, to Christians. He's saying, you guys were messed up. Some of you were sleeping with other men. Some of you were adulterers. One of you is sleeping with your stepmother. Some of you are greedy. Some of you are addicted to getting sloshed on the weekends. There were people in this church who'd, who'd lived mucked up lives, who'd lived... You know, in, in terms of the energy, filthy lives. 
But Paul says, but when you trusted in Christ, when you believed the gospel, you were forgiven and you were washed and you were cleansed and you were made right with God. That's what you were. It's not just that God's forgiven their past. God has totally recast their identity. Some of them were homosexuals. Now they were Christians. Now they were Christians fighting the dying vestiges of their former life. Some of them were adulterers. Now they were God's children fighting the impulses that they had before. They weren't just forgiven people, they were new people with new identities and with new goals and with new motivations and with new loves. There's a book uh, that I've never read, another book that I've never read. I mentioned a few in the bulletin as well that I've never read, but that I've read a review and that's almost as good. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it has the most beautiful title uh, and it picks up on two verses and one of those verses is this one. It's written by a, guy, a Christian guy who, who formerly ha- uh, had been gay. And the title of the book is this, Washed and Waiting. I think that title wonderfully captures the reality of the Christian life. Our identity has been recast in Jesus. We're new people, we're different people, we're God's children. We weren't that before, we are now. And yet at the same time, we're waiting for that reality to fully take hold. We're washed, but we're waiting. It's not that we're washed from our sexual sin and from all our other sins so that we can keep going back to it and throwing ourselves into it like you know pigs returning to the, to the mud pit. No, it's that we've been washed and we're waiting and we're groaning and we're hanging out for all that muck in our hearts and our lives to go away and to be done away with and to be no more. Here is the incredible good news of the Gospel. Even in the midst of these intimidating laws about sex and and sexual failure, here is the good news. No matter what the sexual sins in your life have been, if you believe in Jesus, you're washed and cleansed and a child of God. And here is the great challenge. If you believe in Jesus, you can't keep going back to that old lifestyle because you've been washed and you've been cleansed. You've been made new and you're God's child. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, it would be fair to say that all of us have uh, been touched uh, in one way or another by uh, sexual sin. Lord, whether it's uh, physical or whether it's uh, the fantasies and the desires which mar our lives in this world as we battle against the 
impulses and the influences of our society and our world and our own evil hearts. And Lord, we want to bring all those things before you. Lord, whether uh, they're in the past or whether they're in the present, uh, things that we're fighting hard against, Lord, we pray that you might forgive us Forgive us for taking uh, what you always intended to be a good gift and a wonderful gift uh, and turning it into something damaging and destructive. Lord, please uh, forgive us for that. And Lord, we ask more than that, that you would wash us and you would cleanse us and that you would take away all the wrong desires and the wrong impulses and the wrong thoughts and replace them with new loves, that we would love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Lord, we uh, pray too that as we think about these things, Lord, that we wouldn't condemn others unnecessarily, but that we would show grace, that that we'd be honest about what God thinks of sin, but that we would show the love and the warmth and the grace of the gospel and how much God wants to welcome people who turn to him and believe in Jesus. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing again now. I'm going to sing Blessed is the man, which is a song all about, really, uh, uh, well, it's based on Psalm 1, it's about the person who doesn't uh, walk in the ways uh, of, of the wicked, but who follows God's word and lives God's way and enjoys living uh, in God's way. So let's stand and sing uh, that song.